good morning. We are continuing in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And today we are coming to Jesus' teaching about wealth and possessions. And it's something that always makes us uncomfortable. And I think that's because it brings us face to face with how deep of a hold our possessions actually have on us. The kind of pull that it has on our hearts. I've said this before, but the heart is like a compass. And its needle is pointed toward whatever it is that we love most. Jesus, he intends to orient our love toward the kingdom of God. His desire is that we partner with the Spirit to clear out all of those things that crowd out our vision and try to pull our hearts off course. You've probably heard the story about uh, John D. Rockefeller, um, a man that Forbes magazine estimates had personal assets in excess of $435 billion. To put that in perspective, that was about 3% of the nation's GDP at the time. Whole new, like, next level of 1% right there. Well, he was once asked by a reporter whether or not he had found contentment in his wealth. To which, to the reporter's surprise, he said no. So the reporter did what a reporter does, asked a follow-up question. Well, then, what would it take for you to be content? To which Rockefeller said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. I mean, it sounds so modest, right? But it just names the restlessness of our hearts. Experts in the field of positive psychology tell us that our brains are actually wired to mispredict whatever it is that we think will make us happy. We assume that if we can, you know, just achieve a certain set of things in our life, we'll find happiness. Uh, I'll be happy if I get admitted to the right school. I'll be happy if I find the right spouse. I'll be happy if I make vice president at the company. I'll be happy if I could just get that addition to the house. But in his research, actually, uh, Acor says that he's found this kind of if-then perspective actually quite damaging to our well-being. Because each time that our brain experiences a success, it just goes ahead and moves the goalposts. So that what success looks like is going to require more. So if you get good grades, you have to then get better grades. If you have a good job, then you've got to get a more prestigious job. If you hit your sales target, you've got to raise your sales target. If you buy a home, you're already out looking for a bigger home home. And every time we try to measure happiness by accomplishment, it is to turn that needle compass just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Each time the needle nudges just a few degrees off center. But over time, our hearts are actually nudged into a way that is aimed toward a different kingdom altogether. And in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually forces us to confront our relationship with money and things as a means of kind of trying to free us from this cycle of just a little bit more. And he does this by bringing 
our vision and our hearts into alignment in order that we would seek first the kingdom of God. So, to kind of declutter our hearts, Jesus asks three diagnostic questions. What is your treasure? How is your vision? And who is your master? So we're here in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. You can follow along in your Bibles, or you can just listen along as we come to Jesus' words. He said, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Or in the original language, as it puts it, you cannot serve both God and the God-like power of mammon. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Edward Bernays was a United States intelligence officer in uh, World War II, and he also happened to be the nephew of Sigmund Freud. Well, during the war, he actually became fascinated at how adept the Germans had gotten at using his uncle's ideas regarding uh, power and the desire and the, the way the subconscious works. They used that in their massive propaganda machinery to shape the behavior of the German people. They got quite good at it. And so when he returned to the States after the war, he wondered whether it would be possible to use those same tactics on the American people during peacetime. Only his laboratory was not the social-political landscape. It was Madison Avenue. Bernays is better known as the father of American advertising. In his book called Propaganda, no joke, he wrote this. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed. Our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. The recent Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, adds to the complexity of targeted advertising and data mining through social media that presents us with 5,000 advertisements per day. Shosana Zuboff calls this surveillance capitalism. It adds this kind of bespoke element to the subtle manipulations that are all around us, the, the ways that our desires are kind of bent by giving us more of what the algorithm already knows that we want. 
One Wall Street banker actually captured this attitude of shaping the American dream and the American consumer like this. We must shift America from a needs culture to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things. Even before the old have been entirely consumed, we must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. This idea that we're actually going to become our most complete selves if we buy the next thing. I mean, now that is just the water that we are swimming in, only the thing is we're not swimming. We're drowning. In his book, The Relentless Elimination of Hurry, John Mark Homer notes that uh, the average American home has more than 300,000 items in it. We consume twice as many goods as we did 50 years ago. Average home has tripled in size in that time frame, and 25% of homes large enough to have a two-car garage can't fit a car in them because of all the stuff we've got. And so, as journalist Greg Easterbrook put it, Americans and Europeans now have more of everything except happiness. And all that is to say is that there is a reason why Jesus only names one other God, and that is the one called Mammon, the God of wealth, because it, while it cannot bear the weight of your worship, it has the power to pull your heart and to take it captive. If you think about it, every single thing that sits in a junkyard now used to be someone's treasure. And so the decision about whether or not to store up your treasures on earth or on heaven is not just about wise financial planning, it is about the matter of the heart. It is about where your heart is most fundamentally oriented, where it is pointed. And Jesus, he does not pull any punches because more than anything else, he warned about our desire to find security in wealth and in things. He called them the, the chief rivals that pull our hearts and our vision away from his kingdom. And so he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he's not making this kind of you know, value judgment about having treasure or not having treasure. He is not even making a comment on whether or not it should be the thing that pulls your heart. He's simply stating a fact that whatever it is that you treasure, that will be the thing that you love most. That is going to be the thing that pulls like gravity on your heart. So if you want to live the life of the kingdom, the first question Jesus asks is, where is your treasure? What is it that you really love? Theologian Paul Tillich claims that everyone, even in this secular age, is religious. Because everyone has something that they think is of ultimate concern. We all have something that we treasure above all else, whether that is family or, or accomplishment or the country or, or money or, or your hopes. 
We all have something that lies at the center of our heart, the thing that we desire most, the thing that our heart most longs for. And that thing has the potential to become a rival kingdom. Tim Keller describes uh, these rivals often as good things that have become ultimate things. And Jesus is telling us that if we don't guard our hearts, possession and wealth, they become chief contenders for our worship. I've mentioned this before, uh, if you think back to the spring when we were going through spiritual disciplines, but it's a good idea, it's a good practice just to kind of take inventory of your patterns of spending and how you spend your time Uh, every now and then. Just take a look at it. Take a look at your credit card statements, your calendar, uh, or even look at the screen time on your phone and and where you spend your time on the individual apps. And, And the reason for that is because we can think that we value something, but our desires, our affections, our our wills will direct our bodies and our spending and our time somewhere else, and they might tell a very different story. Our habits simply reveal the posture of our hearts. And if our goal is to be directed toward the kingdom, we need to know how it is that our hearts get pulled off course. Because the truth is, we might not love what we think. Jesus says, don't store up treasures on earth because wherever security and meaning that that you might find in things, it is never going to be enough. But so what does it mean then to store up treasures in heaven, right? Well, a little later on, there's this scene in Matthew's gospel where a young man comes up to him and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him to embrace the discipline of simplicity. Specifically, he says this, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. And then, come follow me. And I know it's really easy to get tripped up on that word perfect. And you think that, well, Jesus couldn't possibly be talking to me, right? But again, it's that word Telos, it it comes up a lot, and it just means to be unified for the purpose for which you were created. If you want to be what you most truly are, Jesus is saying to this guy, if you want to experience the life that you are meant to live, the life that reflects the the vitality and beauty and flourishing of the kingdom, then you're going to need to break free of the pull that things have on your heart so that you can invest in others. It's that old cliche, uh, live simply so that others may simply live. But the man walks away sad. And I don't think it's because he thinks that Jesus is wrong, but it's because he cannot imagine a life free from the pull that his things have on him can't imagine another way to do life. And if you think that this story might be for other people, consider that he is all of us. 
And I need to make clear that Jesus is not saying that possessions are bad or that wealth or savings or a college fund or anything like that is inherently evil. That's not what he's saying at all. But he is saying that the purpose of those things is to be a conduit through which others are blessed, to pour your life into the things that matter most. I love how Scott McKnight puts it when he writes, we are led to ask what lasts. And what lasts is love. We can begin to focus on the eternal if we live to love God and others. If we pursue justice as the way we are called to love others as God's creations. If we live out a life that drives for peace as how loving people treat one another. And if we strive for wisdom instead of just knowledge or bounty. Jesus commonly urges his followers to live in the light of life after death or the age to come. A while back, I read this fascinating study by Christian Smith who teaches sociology out at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, And his book is called Passing the Plate, subtitled, Why American Christians Don't Give Away More Money. And... In the first chapter of the book, he reports that American Christians, as a group, are the most generous people on the planet. They give more as a percentage of their income than any other people group in the world. So, hey, there's some good news for 2020. But then, he notes that that amounts to 2% on average of their income. So, he started to think about, you know, this little thought experiment what would happen then if Christians gave 10% of their income? It's just kind of a baseline. Do you want to know what would happen? I'm going to tell you. Turns out we have the means to solve the world's food and water crisis, to eradicate global illiteracy, to rid the planet of polio, to decimate the impact of malaria and HIV AIDS, to sponsor thousands of new missionary efforts to quadruple the operating budget of organizations like Habitat for Humanity and still have enough money left over to pay off the debt of most struggling congregations in this country. Jesus tells the rich man, if you want to experience the life of heaven, use what you have to make earth like it does in heaven. Invest in what matters most. That is how you live with freedom and with clarity. But in order to live clearly, we also have to see clearly. So Jesus asks another question. How is your vision? A little while ago, we got a note from Mackenzie's teacher saying that she always seemed to be a little bit lost whenever it is that they were doing this certain whiteboard activity in the class. Uh, And the teacher was observing that the students, and, and it occurred to her that maybe Mackenzie was having trouble seeing the instructions. And so she asked about it, and, uh, She asked us whether or not we had had her vision checked. And Jill and I, we hadn't noticed anything, so we said no. We asked Mackenzie about it, and she said, well, how on earth am I supposed to read what she writes? Her handwriting is so small. So, time to get Mackenzie's vision checked. Sure enough, nearsighted. And I'll never forget, when she put on her glasses for the very first time, she's like, wow, that makes 
all the difference in the world. And so I asked her, well, what do you think is the biggest difference? And after a kind of a pause, she squinted and looked at me and said, you got a lot of wrinkles, Dad. It's true. If our vision is off, we won't see things as they really are. And so there is a proper perspective with which we view the things that we have and our money. Jesus says, if your eyes are healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. But if the eye within you is darkness, then the whole body will be filled with darkness. And you need to know that if this part of the passage sounds a little strange to you, you're, you're, you're not alone. Jesus is actually using a kind of cultural idiom uh, that would have been really common then, but totally unfamiliar to us. Uh, when they would say that somebody had an evil eye or a darkened eye, it meant that they looked at the world through a lens of scarcity, that their inner character was marked by jealousy or greed, like how we would say that somebody is green with envy. It's a person who's kind of closed off, who's got their eyes set on the wrong things, and so they don't see reality for how it really is. By contrast, the healthy eye is someone who sees the world rightly, who sees the world as God sees it, through the lens of God's generosity, whose eyes are not fixed on their possessions, and so they can kind of hold on to their things loosely. It's all a question of vision. Does your heart determine how you see? Or do your circumstances determine the posture of your heart? When you look at the world, do you look at it as though life is this amazing gift of God's grace? God provides what we need so that we can share what we have with others. Or do you see life as this kind of zero-sum game where there are winners and losers in the struggle? What you see and the way that you look at the world, the way that you train your eyes to look out upon it will determine where your heart goes. Our loves and our, and our longings, they get steered wrong all the time, not because necessarily we have been duped by bad ideas, but because our eyes get set on the wrong things. And they, they guide us toward habits and practices that train us to be a certain kind of person without our even knowing it. And when that happens, we start to take on this very different story about what it means to be human, about what it means to flourish. One of the reasons that we take up an offering every week and we say an offering prayer is not because it is a convenient way to pay the bills, but more than that, it's because we need habits to see clearly so that our hearts are calibrated toward the kingdom and away from the grip that our stuff, our money, our possessions, our things have on us. And so whether you have a lot of money or a little you can look out on the world the way that God does, through the eyes of generosity. We give as an act of our worship so that we can see with clear eyes. So that we can see 
with a, the, all the abundance and all of the generosity that God has given to us, but also so that we can see the world as He sees it. At heart, I mean, giving is just a practice reflective of a transformed heart. It's a practice that will, over time, begin to shape you, and it's a practice that you know, it's kind of like putting on your corrective lenses so that you can see the world the way that it is, so that everything that you have is God's and that everything you are is a result of grace. Last question that Jesus asks is, who is your master? Many of you remember this character from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, the Hobbit Smeagol. In the story, hobbits uh, are just kind of like the embodiment of the simple life, right? They live peacefully. They enjoy the simple pleasures of the world. They work the land. They live community. Uh, they fill their days with fishing and, and, and community and all that stuff. But one day, when they are out fishing together, Smeagol and his brother Deagle stumble upon the Ring of Power, which is this magical device central to the story that's been hidden away for centuries. And the ring has this power to take whatever the holder of the ring or the wearer of the ring's desires are and amplify it so that it becomes all-consuming. Now, some of the good characters in the, in the trilogy, they want to harness the power of the ring to do some good things. They want to uh, rescue people who have fallen captive. They want to defeat the powers of darkness. They want to reclaim their people's land. They have all these kinds of noble intentions, but invariably, as they put on the ring, it begins to slowly choke out their hearts. Well, from the moment it catches his gaze, Smeagol's eyes become darkened with envy. He asks for the ring, but then when his brother refuses to hand it over, he forsakes every natural loyalty, every, everything that he believes is good, and he kills his brother so that he can have the one thing his heart most desires. And every single day that he wears the ring, he gets increasingly addicted to it until it enslaves him, becoming the only thing that he lives for, the only thing that he desires, and it show, slowly over time begins to shape him in its image. So that at the end of the story, he's transformed. What he longs to possess ultimately possesses him. The object of his worship consumes him. We are made in the image of what we desire the most. And whatever that thing is, we will end up serving that thing. So choose carefully, Jesus says. Because what you serve will either free you or enslave you, but you can only serve one. Who you serve will depend on where your eyes are set, where your heart is focused. And it turns out that anything under heaven become, can become a master Anything can pull your heart away from the kingdom, from the place where you are made to find your rest. 
And so Jesus invites us to turn over our hearts to see if there is anything so central to them that if we were to lose that thing, we would lose our will to live. If our hearts are tethered to the stuff of earth, we will look for our salvation in the stuff of earth. But if our hearts are aimed at the kingdom, we will find life to draw from in the here and now. Simply cannot serve two masters. Jesus invites us as we come to the table to answer the question Where will your heart find rest? Where will you aim your life? He says, Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest for your souls. But before he goes, he gathers his disciples together in an upper room for a simple meal. And he said that here is the place where in his body broken and in his blood poured out, we will find the rest for our souls. So as we come to the table, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Now lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gathered his disciples together in an upper room. And after he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he poured it out, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant, my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink of it. And so, friends, it is that whenever we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim his dying until he comes again in power and in glory. So as we come, let us proclaim together the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Come, friends. The table is set. All has been made ready.